0: Get ready for a little surf and turf action on Midnight Run Through, a podcast miniseries devoted to celebrating the 1988 contemporary classic action buddy comedy Midnight Run, written by George Gallo and directed by Martin Brass. Co hosted by me, Jen Johans from Watch With Jen,
1: and me, Blake Howard from One Hate Minute Productions.
0: Each week, We'll explore the film we first bonded over when we became friends in 2019 by surfing through the incredible roster of guests from journalists to novelists and beyond who love it as much as we do. Digging into Serrano's finances and Alonzo Mosley's FBI files, come with us on Midnight Run-Through as we crisscross the United States with the characters played by Robert De Niro, Charles Grodin, John Ashton, Yafet Koto, Dennis Farina, Philip Baker Hall, Joe Pantoliano, and company on screen. Today, our guests are...
2: My name is Drew McQueenie. I am the publisher of The Last 80 Substack You'll Ever Need, publisher of Formerly Dangerous, another Substack newsletter.
3: Hi, I'm Ben David Grabinski. I am a professional Midnight Run fan, uh, and I also, <laughs> as a hobby, make some like movies and TV shows and stuff. <laughs>
0: But before we go any further, let's kick things off on Jack Walsh's old turf with the ultimate question.
4: Why were you so unpopular with the Chicago Police
3: Department? You know, it's actually the same reason I got permanently banned from Twitter. Uh,
2: I just
3: don't don't take bribes. Uh, It doesn't matter. Like, I just don't care about money. I care about, you know, being a good person, even if it's going to ruin my marriage and create a bad relationship with my daughter. I just... I gotta do it,
1: man. The integrity is there. The integrity is there. Drew, tell me about tell me about the, the magic of this movie because you're all like it's one of the best buddy comedy movies ever. And the 80s, which you are a scholar of, is yeah, like synthesized that movie format. And almost there's like bookends, there's like the 48 hours, and then there's the midnight run in this era that feel like the most exemplary examples of that. Um, so please talk to me about why this movie just is a miracle that works every single damn time you watch it.
2: Well, I remember before it came out and I was reading about it and reading about the whole process of putting it together. And I was a big Martin Brest fan at that point. I was super invested in what Martin Brest was doing next. And it was because of Going in Style, which I thought was amazing. Mm-hmm. And then Beverly Hills Cop, which I thought was unbelievable. Yeah. And so... <clears throat> I really thought this guy can do no wrong i'm invested in whatever he's going to do next they started talking about midnight run there were all the various casting uh people that would jump in and jump out of the film and for a little while robin williams was going to do it and then that kind of fell apart and when they announced that it was robert de niro and charles groden that is such an odd pairing on paper <laughs> that it was like did they settle is that like <laughs> what they got stuck with like Really? Okay. But I was still very excited. And I remember going to see it when it came out. And I was working at a theater at the time. And I could go to early screenings. We would have uh, midnight screenings of Mm prints to see if the prints were okay. Like two or three days before the movie opened. And so my friend and I were going to go no matter what. And there was a third friend of ours who was really shitty about it in the lead up to it. He did not care. He didn't like Robert De Niro. He didn't like Charles Grodin. He didn't like the poster. He didn't like the, he didn't like anything. And I remember we basically dragged him to this thing (laughs) and he was grumpy going in. He was talking crap going in. The movie begins. I'm all aboard. I think the movie's incredible. My friend thinks the movie's incredible. And then our third friend, Marty, who didn't want to be there at all by the time they get to the showdown in the airport terminal at the end of the film he was on the edge of his seat and as they start building to the big serrano's got the discs moment at one point marty stands up and screams get the discs and i'm like this movie should make 500 million dollars this should be the biggest movie of all time this is insane this guy just gave his heart and soul to this film and was so determined to hate it at the beginning I thought it was going to be a huge hit. I really didn't understand when it didn't pop at that moment. It felt like it should have. Mm -hmm. And every screening I ever saw the film play in played that same way. The audience was 100% on this movie's side. I've never seen it not play that way. Ben, David, how many times? I know we're
1: interrupting as a professional Midnight Run fan. I know we're interrupting you actually watching your glorious
0: 4K,
3: which I was enjoying.
0: (laughs) Apologies.
1: Sorry to interrupt, but... um, why is this so infinitely rewatchable?
3: Well, I had a funny um, uh, relationship with this movie, which is that around like 90 or 91, what year did this come out?
2: Oh, this was 88. 88. 88.
3: Um, yeah. So my grandparents had recorded, I think it was Batman off of HBO. And when they recorded it, they started recording it like a couple minutes before it started. And it started in the scene in the airport and i remember like like going to watch batman and then just suddenly being in what seemed like the most intense movie i'd ever seen but like very young, there's zero humor there's robert De Niro, the guy who i knew was like from goodfellas and he's like in an airport and like something's happening that's like a sting operation and there's zero comedy there's nothing that would signify to a young person that this is a light movie and it was like intense, just out of context. And I saw that a couple times before the movie I'd watched on there. And I eventually realized it was a movie called Midnight Run. Midnight Run. That sounds like a really intense movie. If you don't yeah. know anything about it, you're like, whoa, they're running at midnight. That's late. No <laughs> that late. Um, and then uh, I got like I w- like every interview I ever read with like my favorite actors or filmmakers. Like I used to like walk. Uh, to get, like, like Miles, to get, like, every magazine I could get, like, at a grocery store, and then the internet came out, and I was reading everything, and Midnight Run was a movie that came up a lot, so, like, when the first DVD came out, it was probably, like, 99, 2000 or something, just, like, a real bare-bones one, I just, like, cold bought it, and it was, like, instantly the best thing I'd ever seen, uh, it's still, to this day, my favorite score of all time, um, but I've probably seen it, uh, somewhere between like a 100 and infinity times (laughs) um and i find it to be that it just gets better um as time goes on i think that it gets sort of richer and more specific and also just feels so much better the more every time someone tries to do midnight run it just can never get the same magic
0: yeah Mm -hmm.
3: and you know to, to have, like, something be that well set up, that many characters, have the tone work so well, but I just find the last exchange between the two of them to be so fucking beautiful, yeah. especially since Grodin has passed, is, like, the see in the next life, Jack, exchange i can't watch it now without crying which was not how it used to be with me watching it but now the movie has a different level for me it's like mm-hmm. i just get to watch it as like a goodbye to grodin at the end so i have this added thing for it oh i don't get it i do what
4: i wanted to do john i got you to la before midnight so say anything. No, and you, you'll make me want to put those back on you again. Thanks. No, John. Thank you. Thank you. Something to remember our adventure by. Jack. This better be good. This is good. This is very good. When I was making my getaway, I thought the FBI was closing in on me. Take it. Take it. I took some traveling, money. Take it. Take it. It's not a payoff. It's a gift. You already let me go. You son of a bitch, <coughs> you son of a bitch. I wish you I had money. I know you had money. I didn't know you had money. How much is here? Neighborhood of 300,000. It's a, it's a very respectable neighborhood. to say, John. Huh? Take care. Take care. See you in the next life. See you in the next life. See the next
3: life. I don't know if that answered your question, but I just think it's it's my third favorite movie of all time. And I've uh-huh. seen it a billion times and I saw a q a with PT Anderson and George Gallo um at the arrow like two years ago that was my not with I'm sorry with PT Anderson Martin breast a couple of years ago and I also saw George Gallo do a q a after it once and both of those are like two of the only q A's I actually remember I've somehow reached <laughs> up with my age where I've seen so many q and a's that 90 percent <laughs> of them become noise except for like the really outrageous stuff people have done mm-hmm. <laughs> but it just felt it just feels really special.
2: Uh, To me, the movie, that's like a Bigfoot sighting to actually see breast out there talking about one of the movies, and Ah. especially this one is not, you know, even now I still feel like it is somewhat of a cult item. I remember the score, you mentioned the score, and obviously when you see this movie, that score is unbelievable and just one of those things that leaps off the screen and it did not come out when the movie came out. And there was about a year and a half of my friend and I going to every record store and harassing people about this (laughs) thing. And then finally it got announced and it wasn't even universal. It was like another company that put it out as a a sort of a a reissue of sorts. But it took forever for that score to be available. That was insane because that felt like one of the ones that would have sold. Again, the movie just didn't have that commercial footprint. And it was really weird for fans of it for a long time to to realize that it was not beloved the same way by everybody um i i love watching the cult of midnight run grow i love the fact that it seems like it has gotten into the dna of younger filmmakers Mm -hmm. i love the fact that it is influential um and i think that happens with movies like this if they don't find their audience when they come out they eventually seep into the well water somehow like they they just become movies that everybody has seen and they have been passed around somehow and I still feel like this one, it's its a little under the radar. It's still kind of a, not a, a mainstream thing that people love and it should be, certainly. Well, I think it's- the
3: most important thing we have to say about the score uh, and this is my only opportunity to really get into something that's so niche and only matters to, like, three people in the world. I'm 100% convinced that the movie Tremors, their temp score was Midnight Run. And that's how insane I am about this score, is every time I watch Tremors, I'm like, oh, I think they used this track for Midnight Run here, and it probably tested really well, so they trying to follow it. It's like, all, everything that's not real ride related about the two guys trying to get out of town that loose energy it's mm-hmm. it just feels like that was the midnight run score and i saw tremors during uh lockdown at a drive-in and ran in a couple friends before it started and i was like all right guys i just want you when you watch this movie just, just think, just think for a second. Let, me, let me know if it feels like they score they tempt this to a midnight run and then afterwards my big weirdo friends were all like holy shit dude that does feel like this. and guess what you're probably going to cut this part out because it's not interesting <laughs> to anybody. But, I, but I'm but i pretty sure I'm right. And someday I'm going to get to the bottom of it.
0: You know what I love about you pointing that out is you saw this while waiting for Batman. And, of course, you know, Danny Elfman did the score for that. And, like, that's one of the first things I remember learning on piano was Elfman's Batman score. And, you know, so you were a, an Elfman guy without even realizing it, Ben David.
3: Well, yeah. it's funny because I was an Elfman kid for maybe... I was probably like for like 10 years to like the traditional Elfman stuff because like I was obsessed with the Batman movies, Tim Burton stuff, Pee-wee's Big Adventure,
0: yeah. and I knew
3: do everything Danny Elfman. And then I saw him run in like 99, 2000 or something. Yeah. And I'm like, how is this the same guy?
0: What is going on <laughs> yeah.
3: here? Like, we got to get to the bottom of this. Someone explain this to me. How is this? Because I just decided he was almost like a trope or I don't know what the right word is, but there's like. A thing that he does, and it's not like Groden and Elfman are going around and you're hearing like la 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 la. Like there's none of that stuff. <laughs> it's like a completely different vibe, but it's so fun.
1: It's got that mm-hmm. great, and it's lick, weird. that great lick, that dunna. Da, 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 and it's like, oh, like if you hear that that note in the lounge room, that's my earliest memory. Is like after watching Midnight Run and then having it on VHS and you hear da, 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 da it's like, oh, Midnight Run. Like that's you come from the next room and you go, oh, yes, it's on. It's on now. Yes. There's two hours that's going to go out of my life instantly. Sorry, Drew. Go ahead.
2: Uh, it's just and it's so different than uh, anything else in his career. It still is an outlier. Like even when he's worked in other modes besides the big sort of Burton-y uh, vocal mm-hmm. choir thing, um, there's still sort of a an Elfman sound and a feel. This one just kind of stands on its own and it doesn't sound like any other movie and the group he put together for it doesn't sound like anything else he ever recorded with it doesn't sound like boingo it it, like it's its own thing and i kind of love that uh it is so singular in his career
3: yeah like there's stuff of his that you listen to and you're like wow this is so different for him like the freeway score or whatever but you still Mm -hmm. can tell it's elfman but this is just like a man possessed but possessed (laughs) just having like a really fun time It's just like, there's the weird thing is that there's just no darkness in it, which I think is probably the intention. Like, I don't know what it was, but my guess was that the movie felt like it could tip a little bit more into thriller territory than they meant. So they probably tried to balance it with the music, but whatever they did, I I love it.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of miraculous. Let's, let's talk about this movie being so damn moving at different parts now later we talk a little bit about grodin but the the scene that like i can almost not even talk about without choking up is you know in amongst all this fun and this humor which we'll get to there are scenes like
2: jack going back to Mm -hmm. his house to see his wife oh when his daughter comes out and gives him the money it is one of the great moments in de niro's career
3: About one hundred and eighty dollars babysitting
4: money,
2: sweetheart. I can't. I can't. Please. I can't. I can't, sweetheart. He is so because he is, and it's because I I grew up with him as an icon, sort of of. Um, method acting and sort of these dark places he would go to. The <laughs> first thing of his I ever saw was Raging Bull when I was 10. And I was, awesome. I thought, okay, what is this guy? And everything was measured against sort of that standard. What is wonderful in this is watching somebody cut through all those layers of what we thought De Niro was. And that scene is one of the ones where I don't think we'd ever seen him play that on screen before or see anybody kind of poke through the toughness like that and she devastates him it's so Mm -hmm. great yeah sensational
1: and that that when he refuses to take it and how he's trying to keep it together and how grodin is so gentle with him you Mm -hmm. know he's just so sweet Mm -hmm. he's just like he knows how tough that must be and just them reversing in the car and oh it's just and he just puts his little hand up to wave to her it's just oh
3: I find the train car scene really moving because it's not overly sentimental. The moment when they start to like kind of bond.
4: Where do you figure we are? My guess would be Arizona. We've been going west all night. I think we're almost home. I'm almost dead. Hey, look, John, you know, the witness protection program isn't so bad. They'll give you a new name, you'll have a new life. I'm not gonna make it to any witness protection program. You don't know that, John. I know that. You know that. Serrano's gonna get to me before I get to any witness protection program. Do me a favor. Don't pretend you care about me. It really insults my intelligence. I mean, let's face it. The only important thing about me to you is getting your money. You know, I'm really tired of you making me out to be some kind of thug whose only concern is a big chunk of change. Did you know that Serrano's people offered me a million bucks for you? Well, why don't you go for the big money? You're doing his work for him anyway. I'm working for him anyway. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. The reason I do this shit in the first place is because I wouldn't work for that lowlife asshole. What does that mean? Nothing. It doesn't mean anything. Serrano is the heroin dealer you told me about in Chicago. Who owned your buddies and destroyed your life, that's Serrano? That's the guy that you're taking me in? That's the guy that's gonna kill me? I hope it's a wonderful coffee shop, Jack.
3: there's just something there's a couple moments in the movie where it feels like De Niro is really like laughing at Grodin or laughing at himself like there's a part on the plane when he's like he's like -hmm. you're your your class of people when he's talking to him and he does this thing with his tongue where he looks like he's like laughing and it felt like that's that's why they picked Mm -hmm. that take but that scene you know everyone knows the apocryphal thing you probably have a million people bring it up but which is that at the scene when he started talking about like wanting to fuck farm animals or whatever (laughs) that was just they gave him a million things to try and they were just trying to make De Niro crack and that so that scene was like half improv half like they gave him like 10 prompts Grodin to do there Mm
0: -hmm.
4: and it
3: really does feel like he's getting through to a guy he usually finds him annoying and there's just like this real begrudging kind of bond there that I think is so hard to pull off um, you know it's like the biggest trope of all time two people who don't like each other eventually mm-hmm. end up liking each other even though it seems like they never will but it is the I think my favorite version of it yes. uh, outside of like a screwball comedy sort of thing like in terms mm-hmm. of like the platonic relationship that's probably my favorite version of it it's like the way that they gently make it feel like Maybe they would have been friends, or maybe they would have fucking hated each other. But <laughs> they don't hate each other now, which felt impossible. Like he doesn't suffer from fistophobia
2: anymore. You know? Well, <laughs> I think you're right. I think it's the fact that that moment is real, and that there is a a real game that's being played there by Groden as an actor, but as a person, just trying to see if he can get through to this this Mount Rushmore legend of focus uh, you know, De Niro is so legendarily uncrackable and somebody who comes to the set so fully embodied already in, in his character and for Grodin to be able to poke through that. And for us to see that on screen, it's really wonderful. And you do get a sense a, a couple of times that Brest wanted to let Grodin play and wanted to see how far he could let Grodin go with De Niro and Um, And I think that is it really speaks to him as a director. I think from going in style and Beverly Hills Cop, he is so good at having a structure that he knows if I turn this pinball loose inside this structure, something interesting will happen. And he's so good at setting a scene up and then letting that one element be the random thing that is introduced into it, whether it's Eddie Murphy or whether it's in this movie. I think Grodin is so effective as a comic tool and I love him in so many films. There are so many of his performances that I think are, are really next level. He's he's a bit of a genius, a comic genius. Mm-hmm. But this might be one of the most unfettered versions of that we've ever seen. And I think it's because Brest was so entertained by him and took takes that other directors might not have or got him to places other directors might not have let him go.
3: I just think that there's, you can tell when a director is enamored with performances. Like some directors, you can tell what excites them about process. And I think- on all of Martin Breast's movies, you can tell that he just likes letting actors cook, and some <laughs> actors don't like it because he might shoot way too much. Um, but you know, you can tell he's like, no matter what the movie is, like when Pacino is doing his big grandstanding thing in Son of a Woman, you know, he was in Video Village being like, We need 40 more takes, I
0: <laughs> let
1: him cook, let him cook. But also,
3: well, I think what he's really good at is creating dynamics between people like Beverly Hills cop is just like 40 scenes of Axel Foley either butting heads with somebody or someone starting to like him and he's Mm -hmm. very good or it's like Chris O'Donnell and Pacino it's like when he's working with actors it feels like he he reaches this point where it feels like there's either a strong familiarity or like a long-born contempt for each other that may not even really exist. Like, he's just very good at creating kind of this friction or, like, tension or, you know, a bond mm-hmm. between people, I think. And whatever it is, I just think it, it just feels like he kind of has, like, a good reaction to performance and he kind of, like, eventually get things to a place that are just really interesting and feel real, even if it's silly, you know, mm-hmm. or nice. big in an effective way. I just think he's really good with actors.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think going in style is a, a perfect example of that because it's such a it's such a high concept premise of, you know, old guys robbing a bank. And George Burns is a guy who could be a uh, just a ham on screen and and have the one note that sort of the later Oh God movies leaned on. He's terrific in going in style. And it's a movie where I think they strip away a lot of that. And both of the other coasters, Art Carney in that movie is one of my favorite performances of the 70s. And I, I think you're right. I think it's dynamics. I think he picks the right actors, but then he also knows what that chemical thing is that he's looking for between them. Um, so much of Midnight Run uh, is the evolution of just things they, they can't put down. You know, the opening with uh, Why Aren't You Popular with Chicago Police Department, that's mm-hmm. just an actor's game and, and watching the two of them play that game. I could have watched another hour of that <laughs> one thing between the two of them because it's so rich the way they play it. And he just keeps reframing the question. I love it. Like it starts out really direct. <laughs> and it's like,
1: so Jack, why aren't you? Why aren't you popular with the Chicago police? It's just like every time. It's the that quiet, he said that quiet lady, persistence
3: of it's it. Yeah. Every <laughs>
1: time he keeps asking, it's like, we know haven't you been able to
0: tell why he's unpopular he's a complete shit the The
3: fact that he ever gets him like i feel like he opens up to him about stuff that he's never opened up with in the last decade of his life yes he wouldn't even tell a therapist purely by being i'm stuck with this fucking guy and he's never gonna stop fucking asking me is he i'm just gonna have to fucking tell him the one anecdote i do want to share is that i saw george gallo q a and unless i remembered it incorrectly He said in his office, he had framed uh, studio coverage of the script where someone said the script doesn't even make sense because earlier in the movie, they established that Charles Grodin is afraid of flying. But later in the movie, you find out he's a pilot. And I think about (laughs) that level of misunderstanding of a brilliant setup and payoff all the time. (laughs) Like oh I just can't like can't imagine reaching that point and being like, uh, "This is a contradiction, sir." Earlier, he said <laughs> that he was afraid of flying. It's one of my favorite payoffs in any movie ever. It like, sounds he like We yes. by that he thinks these planes go down, <laughs> and then and then the idea that he's just he has a pilot license is so fucking funny. It's one of the greatest <laughs> gags ever to me.
2: His his entire the entire reveal of Groden at the end as the Kaiser Soze who has pulled who has masterfully manipulated Robert De Niro the entire time mm-hmm. is so good and it's played in such a real way the money belt the everything else yeah. it's the best. just fantastic you you. Are so happy with the payoff because it, it pays off everything emotionally, it pays off plot, it pays off earlier jokes, it reframes whole scenes where the second time you watch it, you're laughing harder at how well he is playing De Niro in those moments. Um, yeah, it's brilliant stuff, and I, I and I would love to know, knowing how loose that set was, how much of the Uh, payoff is carefully structured how much of it was in the editing how much had to be re sort of worked because it feels effortless it feels almost invisible the way uh sort of exposition and characters is is developed in this but it all carefully plays that it's it's a magic trick
1: i love that there's the idea when you tell those stories ben david and we've talked about other stories together before of like like a studio executive thought this was a deposition. You're like, no, it's a movie, you idiot. (laughs) Like it's not someone confessing to a crime. It's it's a movie. How do you not know that that's just like the greatest gag ever, especially because he tries to take off in the plane in handcuffs and gets dragged (laughs) out. A great physical stunt, a great piece of action and business. It's so fantastic. And that you love and love, love just how angry Jack is in that. It's just, it, it plays like, Gangbusters. Oh my god, someone saying it doesn't make sense. That's the best. Definitely, if we talk to George uh, Gallo, we'll have to ask that question. That's fantastic. Well, it's interesting
3: to me because so much of the movie working, I've never read the script or read the original script because I know Breast and him like reworked it a billion times. But the difference between what this read on the page in the movie. Is impossible to know. So, like in terms of the tone, in terms of how you expected Grodin to be playing the scene on the airplane. So, I I don't want to disparage this anonymous person who may or may not exist from 400 years ago (laughs) who wrote *Midnight (laughs) Run*, but. All I know is that the execution of that idea is perfect. It's like, it's so perfectly spaced in terms of the amount of time between the moment he has a meltdown on the airplane and then the payoff of it later. It just feels like a Swiss watch in terms of just at the point where you've completely forgotten about his meltdown, (laughs) this happens. And that could have just been this contrived setup for why they don't fly across the country, but then the fact that it was a ruse is just like you could spend your whole life trying to come with an idea that good.
2: Um one of the other uh elements of this film that I got obsessed with when it came out was the work of Yafik Koto. Oh um yes I, I think Yafik Koto is a terrific character actor. I had never seen anything from him like this. This performance is so funny and oh, is funny so dialed into what this film is doing and (laughs) just truly every scene with him gives me joy because of the choices he's making Uh, his deadpan in this film is a weapon yeah
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: when he's the the i love that he's dead he's deadpan but then as he warms up it's just that great like perfect understanding of tone and breasts just and, and like getting exactly what he wants out of him is that by the end there's these notes of like wonder at Jack shit talking. It's like curiosity and like tit- <laughs> being titillated, even though he's been uh-huh. so annoyed with him steadily from the entire movie. Keep.
0: Gee,
4: I've been looking all over for these. Thanks, Alonzo.
1: We'll be back after this quick break. He's just so wonderful. And there's all these stories we hear that, like, the the set was a bit of a basket case, that Yafet Koto didn't really get along with Marty Bress, had no clue what was going on. But, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think that Jen and I both feel like whatever, whatever, like, disdain that he had, like, he just brought it straight to the character. Like, it was no longer subtext. It was just, like... I have disdain Marty breast is like, well, all that disdain is going to work perfectly because of how pissed off you are with Jack Walsh in this entire. If it's going to work, it's going to work to perfection. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a bit of a miracle, but God, he's just like, from the moment that De Niro puts the glasses on in that car,
2: in oh backseat, It's,
1: it's all over. Oh. It's all over. It's the best. It's <laughs> 10 out of 10.
3: I have a theory that we are feeling just him being annoyed with the movie and he didn't care about covering it up and we're just (laughs) benefiting from that. Yes. Yeah, be, But there's movies where I know for a fact that this has happened. I don't know if that's what happened with this one, but this does feel like after like the 10th day where he had to do 30 takes, his attitude with everything is just like, fuck this movie. Fuck you (laughs) so annoyed. And it just makes it work even better. It just feels like his disdain for the movie is interpreted as his disdain for De Niro's character. Uh, And hopefully we're just benefiting from that. Look, I don't believe in intentionally driving actors insane as a process. (laughs) We're, we're, We're in a more like civilized time but I do believe in benefiting from someone just being annoyed with your presence and using that in the edit. If that is what happened.
2: I, uh, I always, the, the stuff that played at our theater that really landed with the people that worked there, you could tell because things would enter the vernacular. And for about eight months after that movie played our theater, anytime anybody was annoyed with anybody else, I mostly would be the thing that you'd hear (laughs) from somebody.
0: (laughs) Where's Jack Walsh?
4: Uh, he got off with the other guy two or three stops ago.
2: His real name's Mosley. I'm Mosley. That that to me is the ultimate bubbling up of you can't take it anymore. <laughs> I love that. I really love that moment of his.
1: The way he barks it is so good because it's the whole time he's so like deadpan and annoyed and cool, <laughs> and then he just it just I'm Mosley, and then he just try, he tries to bring it back to like all oh, right, sorry, I'm just. Calm down. Calm down. It's the it's it's wonderful. It's so good. Are
3: we gonna talk about how Joey Pants says son of a bitch?
0: Never mind. Jerry, where the hell are you, Jack? Feds picked him up twenty minutes ago. Yeah, what for? What's the difference, man? I never trusted that guy anyway. Well, where the hell are you? Where am I? I'm at the airport. And guess who I'm with? I'm with the Duke. You got him! Up! You got him, Jack! I love you!
4: Yeah! You wanna say hello? Yeah, put him on. Yeah, say hello. Hello. Hello, you son of a bitch!
3: We got you, you son of a bitch! Yeah!
4: Now say goodbye, you lying little piece of
0: shit, because I'm letting them go. Jack!
3: Yeah. That's that's stuck in my head forever is where did that come from? (laughs) Or is that, or my ears just broken? But my whole life, I think he's saying bish. He
2: just keeps he, out of a bitch yeah. whenever he talks to him on the I phone. I love
0: you. Yeah. the, way he does
2: the whole. Like that's another thing that's so great. That the, yeah. That that whole breakout of just Joey Pants and the other guy by themselves, uh, just the constant going on to the surveillance and the I'm gonna go make a call, and that whole bit that goes back and forth between them. Get that's always in. good every time you cut to it in the movie, and it always pays off. Mm-hmm.
3: It feels like screwball comedy, but shot with an 80s sensibility, because it does have that sort of running gag energy of, oh, I'm going to go get some donuts. And where it just (laughs) keeps getting, like, it's just every time they, moral number one and moral number two have to call with bad news, or every time (laughs) to have to call them, you could just never do it too many times. But we're also gonna have to talk about the fact that Dennis Farina is so funny, even though there's nothing comedic about his performance (laughs) and he's genuinely terrifying (laughs) in the movie, but it's not terrifying, it's hilarious. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's terrifying, it's terrifying. That's movie magic. What's up? I think you and I should talk. What are you hanging around for? Take a walk. I heard somebody picked up Mardukas
4: in New York. It's old Moose, Sidney, I'm already on it. I don't have to tell you what'll happen if he becomes a government witness. I can assure you that will not be the case. Yeah, I assumed you were taking that position. But I'm supposed to advise you against such acts. Sydney, relax. Have a cream soda. Everything is going to be all over within a few minutes. John,
0: um, John watch Ashton, watch your cigarettes with this guy, Jack. Yeah, yeah. uh,
2: Marvin is incredible. And I I really, I love him in Beverly Hills Cop. I think yes. he is the perfect foil for Eddie's energy. And yep. as much as I like Judge Reinhold, I think Jud- John Ashton may be the glue that mm-hmm. makes so much of what works in Beverly Hills Cop work because Mm -hmm. it's his thawing. It's watching him realize that Axel's actually a cop and actually deserves respect. That's really the arc of the film. I love that he brought Ashton back and let Ashton be a dirtbag this time and he is awesome as a dirt bag. marvin's just scum and i I love every time marvin gets clocked i love every time marvin gets locked to something i root for marvin to lose it's awesome
1: and also when there's seven or eight cops standing at the edge of a ravine looking at him down there and he's like what are you guys gonna stand there with your thumb up your ass it's like that's the perfect Marvin because he's even cantankerous and pissed off when someone's going to help him. He's just mad yeah. that they haven't helped him fast enough. But no, you're so right Ben David about about Farina. It's because like, you know, and this is I think you put it this way Drew of like these kind of movies that aren't necessarily successful when they come out, you can actually see their true success in the reflections and the refractions that other filmmakers are inspired by it, try and take to other things. And it's just like, there are so many characters in here, whether it's Joey pants, whether it's Dennis Farina, whether it's John Ashton, where people are like, I pretty much just want their character from Midnight Run to be in my movie. Right. And like, this mm-hmm. was the unlock thing for Dennis Farina. Like, you know, the, the get shorty of it all. I think Jenna yep. and I have talked about before the, you know, the the snatch of it all much later. It's like, they're all just making jimmy serrano like that's exactly what they kind of want and then maybe tilting it a little bit to the left or the right but the, like the fact that he can be mean menacing malevolent and then just patently hilarious as well it's it's just all it like this is the fullest use of him
0: but i think it's because it's the, and get shorty seems yeah. to be a distillation of moron number one moron number, number two yeah, yeah a little bit
2: Sorry. it really feels like the first time they let him be charming and it's the charming that becomes more threatening because he mm-hmm. is he is super charismatic in this. Um, and he and because everything he says is so sharp and so funny, you're drawn to Serrano. Like, you can't help but like Serrano as a character. But everything that he says is horrible, too. And yeah. he is. Yeah, really.
1: Sit down, relax, have a sandwich, drink a glass of milk, do some fucking thing fucking like, yeah. yeah.
3: thing. Have a, have a cream soda. Cream um, soda. Um, <laughs> the, yes. It's... The thing about him for me, though, is this whole movie is like the right choices. Like John Ashton's character, I guess a bunch of like much bigger stars wanted the part, but Breast was like, no, I feel like this guy's right based on his experience working with them, which is a thing. Just if you spend a whole time on a shoot with someone, you can kind of see where their range is. Mm -hmm. But with Farina, it could have been like a Jack Palance and Tango and Cash kind of bad guy. It could have been a stomach, like a mustache twirling, big like scene stealing part. And Farina feels to me like there's really nobody in the world who would have been better for that part because he feels really small and yet he has this gigantic presence. You feel like he could run a whole city, like he could be the running a whole criminal empire,
0: mm-hmm. but he's
3: not like, you know, big boy Caprice. He's not doing like these big things where he's like trying to get attention. And that is what makes it like an iconic performance that like you remember your whole life is because he's not going for the rafters on it or he's not trying to make the movie all about him it just seems like he's a guy who usually can get everything he wants and we get to watch him not get it you know yes, mm-hmm. yes. yeah
0: he's not Pacino and sent of a woman to talk about the next movie that uh breasted yeah yeah exactly. yeah just like, they mm-hmm.
3: really really smart choices because you could have had an outsized villain and I think it would have worked mm-hmm. but just not as well
0: yeah
1: you want a guy that and that's, what's so great about him as he says like sometimes when it's the charm, it's like that scene in the limo with Grodin and then the, all the awful stuff that he says to Jack when they're in the airport, like when he's right up to him and talking about leaving Chicago and his wife and, and his mm-hmm. daughter and all that's all that stuff where he's really trying to, you know, rattle him. Um, it's, 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 you, you want to see a guy who you believe can run a whole city, but also likes to get dirty and say things and watch people react to him controlling them like he's he's got that there's something really uh vindictive about him it's 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 kind of beautiful and he just does it with that big glorious smile and his drip you know his drip like he's in analyze this or something like that he's just he's fantastic
2: well i love guys in the 80s because like early army was like this and dennis farina is like this guys who came out of a very real background and yes, carried right. a lot of stuff that they had seen into the choices they're making as actors. And I, I got to wonder who Farina met, who Farina knew, like, who is he drawing on when he thinks about these characters? Because oh. you know, he has life experience. He's And I love oh, character yeah. actors that had other lives before they became actors. I think <laughs> they inevitably give you stuff that you couldn't have asked for. And I think Serrano is one of those creations where... I guarantee he knew somebody. He there was some guy that he is playing here that he remembers who could work a room, who could work a city, who so I I'm fascinated by Farina. I love as a character actor that after this, he loosens up everything he does after this is definitely colored by what he got to do here. And when you see him in like out of sight or something like that, they're leaning on the comedy chops that Brest was the first guy to really dig deep enough to uncover
3: Yes, mm-hmm. It's so unbelievably good and out of sight. They're yeah. like oh my God. when they
1: check each other's business cards. I, <laughs> it's maybe one of my favorite scenes <laughs> ever. I see the, the comparing notes. I'm just like, that's so funny. It's the funniest thing.
2: Different.
4: It's up there
0: yeah did your dad take care of you uh he took a week off to take care of me and he's worked on his boat every day since Yeah,
2: this is ray nicolette
4: hey, hi. hi pleasure to meet you i heard a lot about you likewise
2: ray's working with the fbi task force on the prison break
4: i see that tell me ray do you ever wear one that says undercover no the was- look
3: one of my favorite non-verbal acting comedy moments of all time is like there's like a scene where michael keaton is just like eating food and like reacting yeah. to it, farina giving him shit and you can tell he, he's like wait are you giving me shit Do you think <laughs> there's just so much going on and just his face and what he's doing and farina's being so like cool about it he's just basically like hey aren't are, you're like the dumbest person i've ever met and like, <laughs> Yes,
0: and he's sitting in the scene and keaton is standing and it's fabulous yeah <sighs>
3: It's incredible. It's that, that's maybe the best. Uh, my daughter brought home a guy where she wasn't dating scene <laughs> ever. Uh, like it's in the pantheon, I think. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk about Jack. Let's talk about De Niro because we talked a little bit about him. But man, th- he's, he's so special in this movie in, in every way. Like he'd always been a more serious, completely method guy. And then he comes in and does this character. And I think you use this phrase drew about like him breast having the ability to like strip things back to like the bone, like, but not, not lose like that core element of what a character is or whatever. And I just love his Jack Walsh to me. And I know Ben David and I probably joked about it on um, Twitter and things like that, about like the midnight run sequels and whatnot. But it's like, I feel like that this is like De Niro's Joe Hallenbeck. That's my like little thesis of like, it's the, it's the role that, you know, the fans of that actor who's massive who has all these iconic performances it's the one that everyone's like but wouldn't it be great if we had more joe hallenbacks from bruce Willis? wouldn't Mm. be great if we had more jack walsh's from de niro at this time like he was peak hotness peak dirtbag de niro um and jen can absolutely attest to that and i just love (laughs) i love him so much in this movie he's just perfect he's so perfect
2: uh, it's a great look for De Niro he's and it's funny because he had the, he was so famous for the oscillating weight as he went yeah. from you know roll to roll mm-hmm. and it must and it he said it took a real physical toll on him and as he got older it really yeah he regretted doing some of it because of what he had to live with this movie it's the perfect De Niro look everything about him hangs right he, he, sh- he is the perfect sort of square action star and I'm really surprised it didn't changed the direction of kind of what Hollywood was trying to give him. I think it may have. I think stuff like Ronan might not have happened without this, because I think there is something about his physicality here where for the first time I have really bought him as a credible sort of action lead, not as a even in the dramas, even in like The Godfather and stuff, you don't think of him that way. You don't think of him as handling sort of the action thing. And here, there's never a question that Jack can handle himself or that Jack is capable or that Jack is physically confident. And that is just a different physicality of De Niro's that from the very beginning of this film, just watching him walk, I you've never seen this guy before. And I really, mm-hmm. I do. I love Jack Walsh. I think everything about him is so, his frustrations, the way he Almost can articulate it, but not quite, I think, is hilarious. I think De Niro is maybe at his best when he's playing slightly dumb guys. Um, (laughs) Not really stupid, but slightly dumb. And this is not Lewis and Jackie Brown. This is a guy who is sharp, but Grodin is so much sharper and so much funnier. And that is, for Jack, truly frustrating to have to deal with, like this guy who can just bugs bunny his way around him.
1: Uh, when when he says, when he puts the tip and he goes, it's 15%. He goes, it's 13%. And the looks <laughs> that he does when he's doing math. Yeah. Like at Grodin and he's like taking more money. <laughs>
0: I love that it. That is so like, that's
1: the perfect.
0: <laughs> it's oh, like Jesus. his Burt Reynolds character, basically. Yes. It's like, yeah, De Niro, his Burt Reynolds thing. Yeah.
3: I think the thing about making a movie that is supposed to be funny Uh, that is the most complicated and can result in like a wildly different bullseye that you're hitting is always casting. And the thing about this movie that I just find fascinating is this character could have been like Fletch, you know, it could have been, and I love Fletch, but it's a completely different type of movie. It's like, that's a joke machine. You just love that. He's being smarmy. You just want to laugh as much as you can. And he's just so clever. And if this guy had been someone who's doing like sort of a clever, sarcastic energy, it just would not have worked. There's like, it's such a specific thing where it's like, I can't imagine anyone for either part that would be this good because they still Mm -hmm. don't fit into like this sort of specific thing. It's not like Martin and Candy and Planes Trains. There's no other buddy movie that has the exact same comp in terms of like the energy the two actors are bringing. And De Niro is like, unbelievably funny in a part that could maybe be annoying or unlikable with the wrong person like because it's De Niro and because he's bringing in his energy to it it's funnier than it would be if like it was a funny person and the fact that that worked or that someone greenlit it like I just can never understand how a lot of these movie miracles happen I mean I get it because had made Beverly Hills Cop but how did a studio go yeah we're gonna pin this whole movie on De Niro and Grodin when the type of people here that they wanted was like, you know, they want Robin Williams and people like that. And mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people who I love, but this movie is the movie it is because it's these two guys, you know, it's guys who feel like they're in an Elaine May movie, not <laughs> yes. guys who feel like they're in a yeah. movie,
2: you know? Yeah. Well, and I think now it's easy to say, well, Robert De Niro's funny. 1988, that was not a given. That was not no. something that was a, a guarantee or a uh, even really, I I can't think of many comedies he'd even attempted before this. Um, it was truly a revelation when it happened. And I remember my friend and I afterwards just marveling at the fact that who knew? Who knew De Niro was deadly funny? Like, he kills me in this movie. A lot of what is genuinely funny are just choices he makes and things yeah. he does. And you're right. It, his frustration at Groden, the moments where you can see him actively saying to himself, "Don't choke him. Don't choke him. Don't hit him. Don't." It's you, you endlessly know the fifty percent
1: you know of restaurants fail in the first year. Like
2: <laughs> yeah, where he's, I'm just like, and then he looks at him. And he's like, just like, how do I make? I, I this love guy watching shut him. Up? I love watching him watch Groden reason his way through the chorizo and eggs conversation. And yeah, there's and in that one. As funny as Groden is, and Groden is murderously funny in that moment, it's De Niro watching him puzzle his way through his food options that always puts me down in that scene. Um, I love watching them react to each other. And that to me is something that I think when you have two actors of that caliber and you have guys who are making choices as specific and as big as they are. I think a lot of what is magical is when you get those moments where they are genuinely reacting to the other person and you see the choice register and then you see them making a choice right back at them. And so much of this movie feels like a game between the two of them that it's a real privilege to get to watch because of the just the level at which they're working. I I, I truly don't think anybody has ever let Groden poke another actor the way Brest lets him do it here. And Groden's great at it. He, he must be the all-time great needler I've ever seen. But to have a grizzly bear like Robert De Niro that you're doing it to, it just becomes... There's a point where it's kind of scary. And that's that's part of the comic tension is he could die. So... He might, he might the kill him counterfeit
3: money scene is one of the fucking things ever. Um... The litmus.
4: Uh,
0: share that look. The yeah. the,
1: the, lit, the litmus configuration and his yeah. posture.
2: Are you doing about-
4: it? Who wants to know? Me. I'd be the manager. I'd like to see the manager as soon as possible. Yes, sir. Sorry. Yeah. Alonzo Mosley, FBI. My partner and I have been tracking a ring of counterfeiters passing phony $20 bills across the state. Have you received any $20 bills in the last couple of hours? Yeah, sure. We get them all the time. You get them all the time. Would you mind taking two steps backwards? Would you mind opening the register? No, don't touch them. Excuse me. Contract two, Hank. Check him out. Give him a pencil, please. Do the litmus configuration. You're doing the litmus configuration? Litmus configuration. Yes. You seen any suspicious-looking characters around here? No. Do you live around here? Yeah. Mm. How's it look? This one's bad. Would you describe exactly what the last man who passed a twenty-dollar bill to you looked like? Thirty tall. About six feet tall. Six five. Dark brown hair. Light colored. Sounds like our man. That's him. We're going to have to take these bills for evidence. Make up a receipt. This one's bad, too. Uh, This one's bad, too. I'd like you to notify all the other establishments in the area of this situation. What's the name of your establishment? Red's Corner Bar. Are you Red? Yes, sir. You dye your hair? No. Why do they call you Red? Oh, it's short for Red Wood. Uh, My last name's Wood. What's your first name? Bill. Thank you for your cooperation, Bill.
3: Hank? It's like... I can't get over that scene. I can't get over how quickly De Niro is like, oh, this guy's onto something. I'm going uh, to, how do I play a <laughs> here? It's suddenly like watching a guy do improv for the first time. It's just this incredible dynamic between the two of them. But there's something I want to talk about um, before we're done, which I think is really important. And I'm sorry to have to do this, but is Grodin's character consistent? Because when he talks about food dishes, you really <laughs> like they may not actually be good for you. And yet... He's judgmental of the kind (laughs) of food that Robert De Niro likes to eat. This
1: is another note, another Uh note that just, that just missed. It just missed. Breast wasn't listening and they should have And absolutely breast should have been.
3: Well, that's, that's the one thing in the movie that I might have been a gigantic useless jerk and been like, guys, are we cool with this? I mean, if you think it's funny, it's okay. But like, does it seem consistent? And uh, I feel like I'm criticizing like the brush strokes on the Mona Lisa by even saying it. So I'm really sorry to even bring it up. But <laughs> it's I just, I just, I just felt like mentioning it.
1: Oh, you know? okay.
0: Well, that, David, I don't know. <laughs> we're
1: we're, we're going to have to leave that one with you, but no, that litmus, like that, that's the true. I, I think you nailed what it is. It's like, mm-hmm. there's a miracle of someone doing improv and they're good at it. Like someone just like, Going on a tear in front of you or as a real person, someone who's genuinely a really funny person. Like I've got a couple of mates who are comedians, and when they just go off, they're not like your funny friend anymore. They're like they're they're yeah. a different animal. And you're like, oh my God, that person is funny. Like just <laughs> and 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 so the way that he does that scene, it's just the same way he delivers RFT. Like, I'm just like, I want to <laughs> see the reverse shot on De Niro, like the way he delivers that line, because you just feel like if he was ever going to break up, it's just him watching Groden ask the guy if he dyes his hair. Just
2: all, just that stuff is just like it's so perfect. Absolutely. I do think that a lot of a, <laughs> this movie is a marvel of timing, and so many of the jokes aren't jokes on the page. It is simply how somebody says. When you talk about the the fifty three cents and the oh tea, that's not it's not a joke necessarily, but mm-hmm. Groden is. Wildly funny in that moment. And it's just him kind of wrestling with the choice and the, and there's everything about the history of what's go- gone on before they even sit down at that counter. I think that's what I think Breast is so good at. He finds humor and stuff that I don't even, I, I do think if I were covering the script, you would have a hard time seeing this movie on the page because so much of it is simply in the music of how he gets played.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: But that's my take on everything. And I think that the biggest lie. That we've ever told ourselves in this business, or as fans of movies, or as journalists, or as writers, or anything, is that there's any movie that's not execution-dependent. Like Mm -hmm. there is no script that anybody could direct. There just isn't. And there's there's no script ever that if a bunch of people did it would be the same movie. Like the the vision matters, and it's not that it's saying writing's not important, but it's like you you have like a Casablanca, you know, could have been like incredibly serious, or it could have been too funny, or it could have been less romantic. It doesn't matter what the movie is. It's like if you don't like see the code in the matrix on it, something that can be completely different. So that's why someone like Martin Press matters. It's like you know, Beverly Hills Cop was supposed to be a drama when Stallone was on it. It's like yeah, if someone's point of view on material. And their interpretation of it can just create drastically different things. And it's like, if you gave that movie to a pure comedy director and not somebody who's like sophisticated, like Martin Brest, it could have just been like a joke machine and it could have been tedious, you know, or you could have given it to someone who doesn't have a sense of humor. uh, And then it could have been a nightmare. I mean, that's the beauty of so many movies we love is like that they could have been terrible.
1: Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. my big thing on Miami Vice, you know, 2006 by Michael. And I'm like, if you gave that, if you gave that script to someone else, it's absolute hot garbage. Like it's, it's, it's incomprehensible. You know, it's all the things that people who are not on its wavelength, criticize it about, like you can completely buy into, but I'm like, when you see a real master, take that thing that he's crafted himself and put it on the screen and have that really deliberate perspective and style. It's like, that's it it's that it's that lens on the material that elevates it to something that is worth going back to, and so that that's why this movie is a miracle is because it has it, it manages to s- s- have that. I think you said it about breast, like the sophistication of going. This is the moment I'm going to lean into comedy. This is the moment I'm going to lean into sentimentality. This is the moment I'm going to lead into you know, genuine warmth and connection with this character bond forming and tension, and then this is where it's dark and and even just the score like you said like the score is helping helping to even change the temperature of some of the scenes it's 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 a miracle any closing thoughts for us
3: um closing thoughts uh wow i feel like so much pressure now there's so much stuff i want to say about (laughs) but i'm I'm glad that there's like a cutoff time here because otherwise (laughs) You just be like, why did he say fucking 10 million <laughs> of stuff about Midnight Run? I want to talk about every single part, every shot, every location. I want to talk about like how these downtown LA, like uh, how they like, you know, New Zealand for the river thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think it's great. And I just think it's really nice to have an opportunity to talk about it or that enough people care about this thing to maybe want to listen to it. And I'm thanks for having me.
2: Of course. Thank of course. You. Anytime. I mean, Drew. Yeah I I feel the same way. It's it's a movie that for a long time felt like a secret and mm-hmm. um seeing that it has not only gotten through in pop culture and sort of been digested by other filmmakers but seeing that the movie itself um is important enough to universal that they bothered to put a 4K out like the yeah. fact that that exists uh it is something they've taken care of. It is something that has become an asset to universal and not sort of a forgotten disaster. I I think that summer it felt like it missed with people. And I love knowing that it just took a little longer to hit the target, but that people got it and that it it did work for people because there are so many films that I've seen in a room in a theater that I felt like should have been giant hits or should have connected or worked. And they just didn't for one reason or another. And I think with enough time, stuff finds its audience and i think this one is one that continues to everybody who discovers it, everybody who sees it has the same reaction how did i not have this in my life before right now and i need to watch it again immediately
0: this has been midnight run through with blake howard and jen johans we'll be back next week with another episode but until then
4: see you in the next life see you in the next life